I don't use the word often, but polemical describes this book perfectly. Welcome one and all to another round of the Mere Mortals book reviews. My name is Karen. I do these book reviews for those who want to transcend beyond their own mere mortality to look deeper into philosophy of all things. And today we are transcending with the book Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche. This book was published in 1886, so it's got a fair few years on it. And it is 300 pages, although quite a small book in terms of size and the writing in it is not super big either. So it won't take you super long to get through unless you're really trying to read it, you know, sentence by sentence, word by word, which you somewhat need to do because this is obviously a work of philosophy. It's by Nietzsche, one of the most famous philosophers of all time. And it's mostly his attacks on other philosophers, but it also contains general snippets on his thoughts of the interplay between society and religion, for example. It contains his thoughts on the mindset of a free spirit. And it also just has these portions, which I guess are somewhat bordering on nationalism, on misogyny, on just being a really, really angry guy. The structure is split into nine parts, each of these being roughly 30 to 40 pages in length. And they cover different topics. So I'll read a couple of them out. Part one on the prejudices of philosophers, the free spirit, the religious nature, maxims and interludes on the natural history of morals, we scholars, our virtues, people in fatherlands, and what is noble. So he's got a fair few things there. The actual style of it is not really a convincing type book. It's not written in arguments. It's more statements. This is etc. etc. He doesn't provide justification or logic or goes back to first principles. No, he's pretty much just saying, bam, this is what I believe. This is how I think. It takes the form of short rants, I guess. So it's somewhat auditory like. I think if you read it out loud, it might even work a little bit better than if you're reading it as just a, a simple text because he really does go on <laughs> rants where he's fully attacking people and just giving his unabashed expressed point of view with no holds bars. He's pretty much attacking everyone left, right and center. Touching upon the author in a note on the book, Friedrich Nietzsche. That's my attempt at the pronunciation of the German name because he was German and this book was originally written in German. So I have the translation by R.J. Hollingdale. He lived from 1844 to 1900. So this was published when he was 42. This came after his most famous work or the work that he was most proud of, which was called Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And this, uh, from what I could gain from my little internet research and from going onto Reddit and seeing some other things, is probably one of the most accessible books written by him to dive into because some of it is of his other works are quite obscure, are quite difficult to understand. So this is apparently a really good place to start for a beginner, someone who's just trying to gain some of the initial understandings of what Nietzsche was all about and his general philosophy. And so what is his general philosophy? Well, the first theme that comes up is the free spirit, a break from blind dogmatism. And I'm going to get into this via a somewhat obscure method. I'm going to look at what does polemic mean? I mentioned this right in the introduction. And this is a strong verbal or written attack. And this is the form the book takes. This is his style of writing. And basically... He uses this because he wants to attack something that he thinks is inherently in most of the philosophers of his day, of his time, and even previous. So he was really looking at and thinking that there is a reliance on the assumptions, our own fabrications, and these 
aren't by default true. And so what he's really trying to get at here is the free spirit is bold. He's saying most of these other philosophers in the past, they're relying on the words of other philosophers. They have this big chain linking and they're not getting down to the the nitty gritty. I, I think he's basically just saying, you're all foolish for believing these certain things and I'm going to attack you for this, essentially. So, he was saying untruth is a condition of life and this is the starting of philosophy. So, this is the beyond good and evil, I guess. He's, he's saying we have to be able to con- be content living in, in untruth, in, in sort of paradox in a way. And this is beyond good and evil, i.e. it's not black or white, it's sort of in the gray zone. And so, I'm going to jump to, to page 46 because, uh, and so this is section 29 because he has a, a little bit of a quote here, and I think this can maybe help you understand what I mean by what he thinks of the free spirit. So he says, few are made for independence. It is a privilege of the strong. And he who attempts it, having the completest right to it, but without being compelled to, thereby proves that he is probably not only strong, but also daring to the point of recklessness. He ventures into a labyrinth. He multiplies by a thousand the dangers which life as such already brings with it. Not the smallest of which is that no one can behold how and where he goes astray, is cut off from others and is torn to pieces limb from limb by some cave minotaur of conscience. If such a one is destroyed, it takes place so far from the understanding of men that they neither feel it nor sympathize and he can no longer go back. He can no longer go back even to the pity of men. So he has quite a flowery way with words and he's not afraid to to use harsh and strong words when he needs be. And I thought it'd be just interesting to go over what I noticed from this section of the free spirit and what permeated throughout the book, which was, I guess, the difference between what he believes is the the free spirit and the person who is trapped in their own world and can't escape it, i.e. they're in their own bubble. They can't think their way out of it. They're, they're stuck in weird thought loops and can't get out of it. So he's saying things like the free spirit needs to be bold, independent, cynical, and strong. And this is compared to the weak, lazy, timidness that you will find in other philosophers. So he really goes into it. Now, which philosophers does he mean? Because you could just say, oh, he's just talking about philosophers in general, which he does, but then he names names as well. So he rails against the Stoics. He rails against Descartes, Spinoza, Kant, Schopenhauer, Hobbes, Locke, Hume. And these are just the ones who jumped out at me. So I think what Nietzsche was really trying to get at, which is you need to think for yourself, you need to be independent, you need to be strong, and you need to really consider words and thoughts carefully and put in the time to find for yourself what is true in life because there is no real basis, there is no ground fundamental truth. Um, I might be misconstruing misconstruing this slightly uh, because his words are kind of hard to understand and whatnot, but this is what I took from his understanding his philosophizing on the free spirit now we get on to the second theme that i got from this book and this is the assorted rants beyond sane and rational and so i actually would say these came across not so great and why did this happen so i could quite understand his stylistic choice maybe of attacking the polemics against other philosophers because there can be some merit in really going deep in something me personally i I don't enjoy the style but i can't see why spending a whole book really attacking a group of people and, you know, pointing out their ridiculousness in terms of some of the ways their philosophy doesn't make sense and things like that. Okay, totally understand. 
The problem is he also includes a bunch of other things in this book, which sort of just seem out of the blue. They don't really seem to have a lot of sense. So uh, these were related to like people, to culture, to society, and just some random stuff. So here's a couple of things that I took out. If you go to section 246, so this is on page 217, he is going against Germans and German book readers. And so this is what he has to, to say about them. Uh, what a torrent books written in German are for him who has a third ear. Uh, skipping on to another bit, not to mention the German who reads books, how lazily, how reluctantly, how badly he reads. How many Germans know or think they ought to know that there is art in every good sentence, art that must be grasped if the sentence is to be understood, a misunderstanding of its tempo, uh, tempo for example, and the sentence itself is misunderstood. And then he goes into you know d- d- uh, syllables, diphthongs, vowels, the uh, staccato, the the grammar, things like this. So he's really attacking German readers and German writers. And it's like, okay, but does he include include himself in that, for example? I would probably guess not. I would imagine he says, no, you know, I'm the enlightened one. I I know all these things. Somewhat arrogance, I I think, runs throughout this book a little bit as well. So that's another, you know, a small snippet of a small theme that comes up. But what you'll notice in a couple of the other examples I'm about to give is, this is this is pretty constant. He will attack someone or something and doesn't really give justification for it. He just says they're lazy, but he doesn't prove how they're lazy. There's no science or numbers behind it. There's no not even really any anecdotes. It's just you're lazy. You need to understand better. You need to work harder. And I'll, I'll maybe get into in my personal observations why he, he does that. Uh, but another one in section 231. So in this book, it is on page 201. And this is against the stupidity of feminism. So feminism was, I guess, starting to gain some popularity in the late uh, 1800s or some of the, the concepts were being, you know, started to be formulated, I guess. And so this is a, a couple of things that he, he says about uh, feminism. So, page uh, 201 and in section 239. The the weak sex has in no age been treated by men with such respect as in ours. Um, That pertains to the democratic inclination of the fundamental taste, as does disrespectfulness to old age. So, he's saying, basically, she wants wants more. She learns to demand in the end. She finds this tribute of respect almost offensive. Uh, And then on the section of stupidity. There is stupidity in this movement, an almost masculine stupidity of which a real woman, who is always a clever woman, would have to be ashamed from the very heart, to lose her sense for the ground on which she is most sure of victory, to neglect to practice the use of her own proper weapons, to let herself go before the man, perhaps even to the extent of producing a book, oh my God, uh, where formerly she kept herself in check and in subtle, cunning humility to seek with virtuous assurance to destroy man's belief that a fundamentally different ideal is wrapped up in women, that there is something eternally necessarily feminine. Uh, it goes on and on and on. And basically, <laughs> he, he he's not a fan, I think, of, of the, uh, I suppose, aspects of, of females becoming a bit more empowered, if I had to guess. You know, it's kind of hard to tell. This was, as I mentioned, written in 1886, so... It's hard to know what exactly was going on then without you know, reading plenty of other books and whatnot of, of the movement of feminism, what things were being said. But, you know, shock and horror if a, if a woman was to produce a book. That, that seems, uh, obviously, with hindsight now, we, we can look back and say that's, that's kind of uh, ridiculous. 
in his time, was it ridiculous? Uh, I'm not too sure. Was that the general sentiment? Was he blindly following uh, that? Because I, you know, if I had to think, I would say he was probably just blindly following the sentiment of the time. Had he really investigated his own morals into whether women should have rights to vote, to write books, to, you know, behave in the manner that they want to, or at least be in a less restrictive society? Some interesting things there because I very much doubt that he did. The other one, and this is on, uh, you know, this one just stood out to me for just being so random. So, this is section 294, which is on page 276 of this book. And so, he is talking about another philosopher here and he's talking about laughter. So, here we go. The Olympian vice, in spite of that philosopher who, being a real Englishman, sought to bring laughter into disrepute among all thinking minds. Laughter is bad infirmity of human nature, which every thinking man will endeavor to overcome. So that was actually written by Thomas Hobbes. That's, that's the part I find ridiculous. Like Thomas Hobbes was against laughter, uh, that laughter is a bad infirmity of human nature. That, <laughs> that seems uh, quite ridiculous. So this is, I guess, you know, it stood out to me just for being random. Why is he talking about this? What what does this have to really do with anything, with his philosophy? I, I guess like he's saying, uh, he's sort of countering this and saying, you know, laughter is good. Laughter is actually something that the gods themselves would would uh, try to aspire for. And uh, I, th- I think the thing that just jumped out at me was why? Why is this in here? What does this have to do? This is a random thing. There is no... Uh, and and then you know a real philosopher I would argue was would contradict this and say why exactly it should be and provide details of how laughter is inherently human or you know it has some basis in reality or something like that but no it's just a statement it's just an argument uh, here's this thing that someone else said ha ha look how stupid that is I'm going to point and laugh at it I'm going to then say why I have the opposite view and why I'm better and. That's it. Okay, we're done with the themes. On to my personal observations and takeaways. What really just permeates throughout the book, what is so apparent is his anger, this rage, I guess, that's within him. Uh, I found a little snippet that might help explain this. So, if you go to section 157, and this is in his Maxims and Interludes, which are basically single sentences where he uh, is a maxim for his life, I guess, something that he tries to live by or just a general thought he has. And this one is, the thought of suicide is a powerful solace. By means of it, one gets through many a bad night. That, I think, explains maybe a bit where he comes from. If he looks at suicide and says, you know what, the, even just the thought of that is a, a good thing and it's helpful for me, he must be in a dark place. He must obviously been through some terrible things in his own mind, whether that corresponds to reality. I'm not too sure. I haven't read his full biography or anything like that, but... I think that might help to explain a little bit where he's come from. He's obviously got a deep disturbed man. I believe in his later life, he did actually go crazy. And so maybe he had some sort of schizophrenia or he obviously had mental issues. And and this, I think, explains part of why he wrote the book, why he did as a, as a real attack. Uh, another one is is just that even when he's trying to be nice, He's insultful. So, uh, this is on page 225, which is on section 252. And here he's uh, trying to give praise to someone. And so, he talks, um, what is lacking in England and has always been lacking was realized well enough by that 
semi-actor and uh, rhetorician, rhetorician, the tasteless muddle-headed, uh, the tasteless muddle-head, sorry, Carlisle, who tried to conceal behind passionate grimaces what he knew about himself, namely what was lacking in Carlisle, real power of spirituality, real depth of spiritual insight, in short, philosophy. So even when he's trying to praise someone who had an insight, he calls him a muddlehead, a muddlehead, um, a tasteless muddlehead. Like what? What's going on? Why? Why does he hate these people so much? And did he meet these people in real life? Was he this kind of person in in person, or was this a caricature that he just created in this book? So it would kind of be fascinating to you know if we had video of those times of of knowing. What was this guy like and how did he behave? Another small observation, and this is probably one of the most famous quotes from Nietzsche you will hear, and it was on page 107, so this is section 146, and the quote goes as such, He who fights with monsters should look into it that he himself does not become a monster. And when you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. What was really disappointing about this was that I had known of this quote for ages and I really, really love it. I think this is actually one of the points where Nietzsche has got a very, very deep insight into human nature, which is if you're fighting against something, you have to make sure that you don't become similar to that. If you hate right-wing politics and you're constantly fighting against them, you're going to develop tactics. You're going to become sort of infatuated with right-wing politics because you're fighting against it so much or you know insert whatever you want into there it can be you know something silly like another football team it could be something serious like another country it could be racism sex like it doesn't matter it's it's i guess the fact that if like you're doing something if you're spewing hate into the world you need to really be able to look at that because it's going to look back at you and it's going to affect you what was disappointing was like it wasn't a full philosophy. I was really hoping that would be part of a chapter or part of, you know, the uh, a section of the whole section of the book um, instead of just like a, a random one-liner that he, that he throws away with everything else in his um, maxims and interludes section where there's probably like, I don't know, 40-ish random one sentences. And most of them aren't very good, but damn, this one, he, he nailed it on the point. So... Very cool to actually read that quote in, in from the original source material or as close to as I can to and, until I read and start to learn to read in German. But seeing that and just going like, damn, he, he nailed it. And then also, damn, it didn't have more explanation because I would have loved to have known more of his thoughts on, on that quote. You know, a whole book on just that quote, I think would have been really interesting. My final observation was that I actually didn't read it all. So this is more a confession on my part. And this is because the last, I'm just going to say last 80-ish pages, I, I got to the point where I was like, man, this is quite difficult. This is not super fun reading. Uh, obviously, I'd read the Martin, Martin Heidegger book before this, which was incomprehensible and I tried to read that as much as I could and it just fell flat. Like the, the words didn't make sense in the way that they were ordered, his style, his writings, at least for me, maybe for other people. Niche was similar, but there was something behind it as well. So I, I could understand most of what he was saying, maybe not to the depth that he was uh, expressing because as he said you know the german le- uh, readers are lazy and i guess i'm uh, gonna chuck myself in that book because i wasn't reading sentence by sentence word by words and there's going to be something lost in the translation because he was talking about the tempo the staccato the german language is very different from english 
in terms of like its harshness, the sounds it makes, the the verbiage, where the grammar goes, all those sorts of things. So what was, I guess, interesting from this was, yes, it's it's more readable. It's more readable than Heidegger. You can actually get something from this. But for me, I, I struggled at parts and then I just got towards this end section and was like, I want to enjoy reading and I totally get that philosophy and I you know, promised myself that I would read philosophical books because they're hard, but there's also a point where you just got to tap out and be like, I can't, I can't keep doing this to myself. Like it's, it's too, it's too hard with no benefit. Maybe if it's hard, but I'm understanding bits and pieces, that's okay. I do think though, that maybe if I read more niche and maybe if I understood more, I could come back to this and be like, ah, when he uses that word, he means this and, uh, you know, has a whole explanation behind it. So it's not just that it's hard to read it's also there's there's something in it which is understandable and maybe this is where i'm just being a little bit lazy and i need to read more of niche and then and then come back and be like ah okay i can get to this next level this next depth that he was talking about so in summary it's an angry book written in an angry way by an angry person (laughs) it's a lot of attacks in this book a lot of hate a lot of just spewing out things was there something of interest and note in this? Yes, I think there was small sections where you could really get something and it's particular to the individual. But on the whole, I can't say I really got anything from this. I still struggled to understand lots of it. But as I mentioned, there is some clearness in it. There is maybe a way for me to come back at this in the future and understand it a little bit more. However, I can't say there was anything that he provided because it was all statements. There was no arguments. There was no going from first principles or saying this is the base layer of reality and constructing an argument on that. No, it was pretty much him just saying, this dude's wrong, this dude's wrong. I think this guy's stupid. Here's something maybe I think, and then et cetera, et cetera, mixed with random observations that he had, which bear no real relation to the way things are nowadays. So all in all, uh, I might come back to it, but yeah, we'll, we'll see. So I'm going to give Beyond Good and Evil by Friedrich Nietzsche a three and a half out of 10. Yeah, I, I can't say I recommend it to people unless you are really interested in philosophy and really interested in Nietzsche. And that is it for today, my Memortalites. Thank you for joining me to this part of the audio. What are your thoughts on Friedrich Nietzsche? Was I maybe too harsh on him? <laughs> I would say he deserves it. If you're uh, spewing out that amount of hate and polemic, I would say... Expect to get some of it back, uh, but I would love to know what your thoughts on Beyond Good and Evil are. The way to do that would be to send me a boostergram. So if you go to newpodcastapps.com, search for one of the ones that has value, you will get a enhanced app experience. So you will see some of the chapters, some of the links that I'm including uh, within these chapters, pictures of niche, pictures of the book, pictures of interesting things that are, are coming up. Uh, And then you could send me a boostergram. So that's just a message you can send in the actual podcasting app itself. It's uh, just a real fun way of being able to interact directly with me without having to go to Discord or go to Instagram or go to anywhere else. You can just send me a direct message and I know, oh, wow, this person listened to the podcast audio. They sent me a message directly while they were listening. And, you know, you can include an insight of, what you thought you can put a timestamp and saying you got this part wrong or i agree with this part all of these beautiful things i I really would appreciate it if you did that other than that i really do hope you're having a good day a guten tag i will see you later bis bald and i'm gonna say goodbye from here auf wiedersehen